All right, welcome back to the Gospel for Life with me on the program today, Pastor Jonathan Van Hoogen from Day Spring Reformed Church. Are you a reverend? I am a reverend. Now, that means I'm ordained, right? I mean, okay, so <laughs> have I'm, an ordination. I'm, not, I'm actually not asking sarcastically. I, I have an ordination that was, uh, you know, you when you 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 have your education, um, your education in certain requirements that perhaps your denomination requires. In my case, you know, certain theology, certain. Um, biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, and you know, church history—all those things. You know, you do all those things, so you have this—you have a degree, and then you also are examined by a host of men who will ask you anything and everything, and it's—you know—you you, you stand before them, and uh, at that point, you are a candidate for ordination, and then with a call to a particular congregation, church, uh, that's when you are ordained. And uh, you know, so, um, for instance, it's interesting, We, you know, I was preaching out Judges uh, this week, and it was preaching in Judges 17, Micah is the, Micah ordains a Levite for his home. He did it with his son. Well, first of all, everything about that is wrong, right? because... Yeah. Micah has no ability to ordain anyone. Right. Um, it, you know, the the priesthood was uh, you know you know you know Moses ordained uh, Aaron and his sons, and the sons would ordain the uh, a priest would ordain another priest. You know, and it, that was the way it went. You right. don't just you don't just get a mail order ordination. You know, <laughs> right. there's no self ordination. <laughs> right. right. So I mean, those are those are it's a you know while it. It's not a degree you put on the wall. It really does mean something, yeah. you know, in the big scope. You know, somebody said you're qualified to be a pastor. Yeah. Well, it's the depends on the witness of the church and mm-hmm. what the scripture says and other men who uh, who have already been called to that office. So mm-hmm. glad you're on the program. I'm glad today. I'm here. Uh, I, yeah. I'm Josh Bells, your other co-host uh, from the Well Boise, and we have. And, and by the way, I. I didn't graduate magna cum laude or summa cum laude. I graduated <laughs> some cum lousy. So, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know that whatever that ordination means, uh, I just, you know, God uh, took uh, an individual and put him in a position that uh, He called him to. Amen. Well, also um, in the studio today, uh, one of our pastoral interns, Ben Rao. Hello. Glad yeah. you're here. We are well heavy today. Yes, yes, well heavy. And then uh, uh, one of the other pastors at, at the well, Paul Luer. Still excited to be here. Yeah. Well, we've been talking about Christian education. Uh, in the preface to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Divine said, the two great pillars upon which the kingdom of Satan is erected and by which it is upheld are ignorance and error. Uh, next month, many of you are going to be sending your kids to school or homeschooling them. And so we thought it was vital to talk about this very important subject of Christian education. Yesterday, we ended the program by talking about the end, uh, the purpose of education, and it's to repair the ruins left by our first mm-hmm. parents, to bring us back into right relationship with God, that we would know Him and love Him. 
Uh, we could say that the chief end of education is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I, I would just argue, if you, if you have any other end to education, then education is actually idolatry. Because 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So if eating and drinking, those mundane things are included uh, or required to bring glory to God, then certainly education is. And if we're not doing education for the glory of God, then it's idolatry. Amen. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, maybe for some of our listeners, uh, now I have an example. Maybe you guys have an example. Uh, can you give an example of how subjects ought to speak about God and bring us to worship? What are an example? What's some examples of subjects and how they ought to bring us uh, to speak about God and, and bring us to worship? How do the subjects speak about God? I think I might be stealing your. Example. That's okay. Take uh, it. I love it. This is my favorite example: the mathematics. <laughs> mathematics. One. Yep. one plus one. Yep. Um, and so, how does equals what? Equals two. Always. Always. Okay. Okay. Good. So it's it has the attribute of eternality. Yeah. So it's an eternal truth? It's an eternal truth. Okay. Yeah. Um, It doesn't matter which way you look at it, it doesn't change. That would be the attribute of immutability? Yep. Okay. It's only true in this studio, though. It's not true in China. It's not (laughs) true on the moon. Well, they might use different characters to express that truth in in their written language. Right. Um, But but the, the fundamental truth of the statement one plus one equals two doesn't change whether you are in Boise, Idaho or Beijing, China. So that means that that truth is omnipresent. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what kind of uh, what kind of things do one plus one equals two? Do rocks do one plus one equal two? Do rocks, uh, you know, make that mental calculation? No. So that one plus one equals two is a personal truth, uh, which means it has uh, it was made by a person. Mm-hmm. So you start stacking all of those attributes together, right? And you find, wait a minute, math actually displays all of the characteristics of God. Amen. Uh, There's a great book, actually a great series of books, a guy named Vern Poitras. He wrote a whole bunch of uh, books on sociology, philosophy, science, mathematics. And typically the title is something like Redeeming Mathematics, a God-centered approach. And he shows in the first just few pages how each one of these subjects reveal God. Mm-hmm. And so no matter what subject that you're looking at underneath the sun, you're confronted with God. And isn't that what the Bible says? I mean, it Psalm does. 111, verse 2, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. The subjects are the works of the Lord. We study them because what are we delighting in? We're delighting in what he's done, what he's done, who he is. And there are so many more Psalms that say delight. Praise God for his works, for his works. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's sadly no longer up there in, the, in this um, same form. But uh, once upon a time, Whitworth University had a um, statement on their physics department page. And it said this, The study of physics develops students' ability to examine and analyze the material world, to think in a physical context, to record and interpret data, to describe physical phenomena in the language of mathematics, and to understand the limits and potential of science. The Christian physicist understands 
that God undergirds both the unexamined universe and the ever-growing domain of what is understood. And so what this statement is saying is it's actually against this idea of God of the gaps, uh, this idea that we only invoke God when we don't know how it works. Mm. No, that's, that's, that's false. Um, God, uh, as this statement says, he undergirds everything, whether we've set our gaze upon it or not. But when we, for example, understand the water cycle, we don't say, oh, well, now we don't need God to tell us how rain happens. Mm. No, actually, when we learn about the water cycle, we learn about the physics behind that. We learn about Boyle's law and what, what it takes for moisture to precipitate out of what appears to be thin air. When we do all those things, what are we doing? We're studying the works of God. Right. And so it's meant for us to look at all that magnificent complexity and beauty and then and worship yeah. and just say, wow, yeah. God, you are amazing. Yeah. And so when we watch, a, uh, when we look at, say, fetal development or wh- whatever it is we're studying, all those things are, are left behind on purpose by God that we might say, wow. All these irreducible complexities point to a a creator. Amen. Yep. Jonathan Edwards called all these things images of divine things, um, that each thing um, in the universe, in the created order, uh, says something about God. There are windows or lenses uh, they are not things in themselves, but they exist as shadows of the divine. Um, and so um, every subject, I mean, e- even if you're at the point where like, okay, I, I can't see how grammar points to God, or I can't see how science points to God. Let's just say that's where you're at. Okay, fine, but accept the first premise, which is the Bible says they do. Uh, uh, in Romans 1, it says that uh, the world, um, ever since the beginning of the world, his attributes and his divine power have been clearly perceived. Or in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, in this and many other places, the scripture is making the claim that everything says something about him. And, and further, that uh, passage in, in Romans 1, Paul says that these attributes of God have been clearly perceived by the things that he has made. Yeah. Yep. So that's the world and the universe around us. Okay, well, um, man, that this is going by so quickly. I, I'm I'm even wondering if I should ask this next question. Um, okay, let, let's jump into it and then we'll just introduce it today and then tomorrow we'll flesh it out. Is there such thing as a neutral education, an education that is non-religious, why or why not? Well, with everything, there is going to be a an, an interpretation and a application, and so what we find is there is there is no true neutrality in the things that we say. You know, the you know there is no no spin zone when you send your kids to school. Right. Yep. Amen. (laughs) No neutrality. Well, I mean, um, again, so to quote maybe 1 Corinthians 10.31, if there was ever a thing that you could do neutrally, certainly you could drink a cup of water neutrally Mm -hmm. or eat a hamburger neutrally, right? 
Um, if there was one thing, that would probably be it. Right. Um, but God says those things are not neutral. You can, two people can be drinking a glass of water and one person could be sinning while they're drinking it and the other person could be bringing glory to God. Mm-hmm. And so Paul chooses those on purpose because he's making a lesser to greater argument there. He's saying, with these things that you are tempted to think are neutral, are insignificant, um, you are to do those things for the glory of God. And so how much greater then is the uh, discipleship, the education, the training of our children, such a greater thing when compared to just the act of eating. Mm. And yet we're to glorify God in our eating, therefore, lesser to greater, we are to give God the glory uh, from beginning to end in every way when we disciple and educate our children. Yeah, and there's a specific way to do that, but you'll have to wait until tomorrow's program to hear that. So there's the cliffhanger. Uh, Don't forget that uh, this coming October, October 21st and 22nd, we have our annual Boise Reformation Conference. This year's theme is The Church is One Foundation. Uh, We have two wonderful speakers, uh, Dr. Joel Beakey, the president at the seminary where you're still attending. That's right. Um, You said still. (laughs) (laughs) I am. He's he's almost done. He's almost done. And then uh, Dr. Derek Thomas. uh, I don't know. What what church is he a pastor at? He's a pastor of First Presbyterian in uh, South South Carolina, and I'm trying to think of the city. Uh, Columbia. Columbia, South Carolina. So Dr. Thomas is a Ligonier Fellow. I mean, these are world-class speakers. If you go to ReformationVoice.com, you can register for free. You're not going to want to miss it. October 21st and 22nd, the Church is One Foundation, ReformationVoice.com.